0: When Julie uh, Lewis McMillan and Spencer Penrose arrived separately in the Pikes Peak region around the turn of the 20th century, they were drawn here by the two major reasons that so many others came. One was a health seeker, and the other came seeking a fortune in real estate and mining. Julie, a beautiful, privileged young wife and mother of two, came with hopes of a respite or a cure for her husband's tuberculosis. Sadly, Julie's husband died, his name was Jim, died in 1902, and a month later, her son died also. Spencer, known as a womanizer and an adventurer, and seemingly unable to measure up to his hugely successful older brothers, came to partner with his friend, Charles Tutt in Cripple Creek Real Estate and Mining Ventures. Ultimately, he became the personification of a big wig, founding or holding major interest in as many as 21 enterprises in the region. Fortunately, Julie's luck turned. She met and married Spencer. Following their marriage in 1906, the the, the Penroses While wealthy socialites also poured their wealth into creating many of the institutions and landmarks that make Colorado Springs and the region a vibrant and beautiful place that it is today, becoming themselves the personification of visionary benefactors, they left for us as a legacy so many things, including, as you've heard earlier, many of these things, the Broadmoor Hotel the Pikes Peak Highway, the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo. Um, They were the founders of the Pikes Peak Hill Climb. Uh, They provided financial support for many local institutions, including the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo, the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center, the Central City Opera, the Pikes Peak Highway, and the Fountain Valley School, and very, very significant significantly in 1937, they founded the El Pomar Foundation, which today continues to give more than 20 million dollars annually to nonprofits. Uh, Following Spencer's death from cancer in 1936, Julie gave millions to build up the Penrose Hospital to help other health seekers. It is my pleasure today to introduce Colorado Springs' premier bigwigs and benefactors, Mr. Spencer and Mrs. Julie Penrose. Thank
1: you. Thank you,
2: Chris. Thank you. We appreciate all those kind words and all those things you talked about. You know, were very nice. But, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to use this time today. To address to you some very important words on perhaps the worst idea ever spawned in the new world, and that is prohibition.
3: Excuse me. What? Excuse me, dear. I don't think these people want to hear about prohibition now.
2: No, no. This is an important topic that they need to hear about and learn about so that they can vote against it.
3: But they already have.
2: They already have what?
3: Repealed prohibition. It hasn't been. a law for over 80 years. It hasn't? No. This is 2014. I think they want to hear about something else.
2: All right. What should we talk about?
3: How about they'd like to hear about us, our story? Our story? Yes.
2: Uh, What should I say?
3: Just talk about things that are important to you. Tell them about your oh, your hotel or your copper mines, your pro, uh, your gold mines. Oh, the gold rush of eighteen nineties.
2: Things that are important to me. Yes. Okay, I'm oh, going to talk about women.
3: Oh, <laughs> dear. This is a well, genteel audience, and I don't think it polite to talk no, about those no, certain no. women.
2: Julie. As I used to say to Charlie, tut, tut, this will be fine. fine. Mm -hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, my father taught me about women. Now, he was a Philadelphia physician, a member of the upper class, and the father of six sons. And his idea was that young gentlemen of the upper class should achieve more than the common man but also hold to higher standards than the common man. Well, my brothers may have been able to do that, but I never was. I'm I'm afraid I was the black sheep of the family. Still, when I was about to set out on my own, my father took me aside for a serious talk, and he warned me about the wiles of women, especially the socialites.
3: Oh, like me.
2: No, no, dear, I would never include you in that group, no. See,
1: <laughs> my,
2: my father taught me about sex not by having a conversation about the birds or the bees or by showing me anatomical charts. Instead, he took, took me down to the river, to the waterfront, to an establishment where he introduced me to a... To, um, A professional woman (laughs) that he had hired for that purpose. It was kind of like going to a clinic to get a shot. (laughs) As a matter of fact, inoculation was the great scientific discovery of my father's generation and I think that his plan was um, to inoculate me with professional women so that I could avoid and be immune to the greater disease of social white women. <laughs> and I, I have thought that was a great plan. I've followed it all my life. <laughs> I've occasionally given myself booster shots.
1: <laughs>
2: and through all that time, I've found that the professional woman is usually a good person, you know she She works very hard to earn her money. She's usually looked down by the upper strata of society. As a matter of fact, she's kind of like me. And and I've always enjoyed her company. How am I doing?
3: (laughs) Could use a little work. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. I'm Julie Penrose. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. My father was the director of the Detroit National Bank as well as he had been the mayor of Detroit I come from a mostly Catholic family and my mother and uh, father had 13 children although five of them died in infancy they loved us dearly mother and father sent me to Boston for my finishing school and from there I went to Europe for my grand tour oh the wonderful things that I saw there but I did miss my sweetheart James McMillan. He was kind of like the boy next door and his father was the US senator for Michigan. When I returned from Europe James had graduated from Yale University and had a promising legal career ahead of him.
2: Like three of my older brothers I went to Harvard where I earned a degree in engineering just barely. (laughs) I think I think the problem was I was more interested in things outside of books. For example, I I hired a professional boxer to teach me how to fight. And I went out for the rowing team. Unfortunately, there was a boating accident and I damaged my eye. And after I got out of the infirmary, I could still see out of the eye, but it was painful. So since that time, I have never read for pleasure. I've always found other diversions for the evening.
3: Really, dear. James and I were married June 18th, 1890, and we built a wonderful life together with two beautiful children, Gladys and Jimmy. Then the Spanish-American War came, and James was called away.
2: Well. Uh, After Harvard, I went west to seek my fortune. I I prospected for gold in Mexico. I didn't find any gold, got into some terrific bar fights. I, um, I invested, I bought into a mercantile store in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Not much usually happens in Las Cruces, so after a couple of years, I got bored and sold out my interest. There was a deal for a cement plant Uh, It didn't quite work out. There were plans for real estate, but I really lost interest. And finally, my older brother Dick suggested that I come to Colorado Springs because they had recently found gold, and I could work with an old friend of mine, Charlie Tutt from Philadelphia. He was here. So I arrived by train in, I think it was December of 92. Mm -hmm. Charlie picked me up from the station. He took me over to his... um, office on on Pikes Peak Avenue, he opened the books, and he began to talk about all his plans for various real estate deals. Now, Charlie was a man who could spend hours going through facts and figures and columns of numbers, but I never could. I got fairly restless. Actually, I was kind of hoping I could find a drink. Now, unfortunately, Colorado Springs then was a dry town and thus leading the nation in the utter idiocy of prohibition. (laughs) Fortunately, Charlie put me in his carriage. He took me out of town, southwest of town, to a Mesa where there was the Cheyenne Mountain Country Club. Now that was a wonderful place. I think it's still there as a matter of fact. But they they had polo, they had bird shooting, they had gaming tables, and best of all, they had a bar where they had a bar where a man could sit down and enjoy a drink. Why? After a while, they even had a bar fight.
3: You're not going to tell that story, are you?
2: Yes, it's one of my favorites. Oh, dear. Yeah, two two polo players came in, big guy and a little guy, and they were having an argument, and the little guy was giving a lot of lip to the big guy, who didn't see anything. To all of a sudden. He hauled off and popped the little guy and knocked him down. Well, I drained my drink. First rule of bar fighting, never leave unfinished liquor behind. <laughs> I drained my drink. I grabbed the big guy, gave him a one-two combination, knocked him through the French doors and out onto the veranda. And then I turned to, to pick the little guy up, but he was looking at me funny. And he said, why don't you mind your own business? <laughs> And I looked around that barroom, and I saw that everybody was staring at me the members, the staff, and I could see it in their eyes, that in their opinion, I was just a hellraiser who did not belong in polite society. Well, Charlie got me out of there. He offered to pay Portalis for the damages, took me outside, tried to make a joke of it but I just sat there in his carriage, and I could feel the heat rising in my face. And I knew one thing. I might be a Hellraiser, but I was going to prove to all of them that I could do things they couldn't.
3: You certainly have, dear.
2: Yes, I have. We, We moved, Charlie and I, we moved our operation up to Cripple Creek, and that's where I learned that if a man is willing to work hard, is not afraid to get his hands dirty, can use his fists, (laughs) can impose his will on men and nature, then you can make a lot of money. And in two years, we owned tracts of real estate, a producing gold mine, and two small ore mills. We were millionaires.
3: James was stricken with malaria while being a quartermaster in Cuba during the Spanish-American War. And then he contracted tuberculosis. When James came home, he tried to go back to his legal practice, but he couldn't. He was an invalid. So we, can, we contacted doctors and they said that we had to move to better climate. So in 1900, we moved to 30 West Dale Street in Colorado Springs.
2: Now it was 1896 when we decided to build a bigger ore processing mill. We built Down here near Colorado City, we built the Colorado-Philadelphia processing mill, and I moved down to run that operation. Unfortunately, as an eligible bachelor, I was expected to attend parties, and that was a problem. Don't get me wrong, I like parties, especially when I can plan them. I love costumes, exotic animals, cookouts, and lots of booze. when other people plan parties, it's usually formal wear, small talk, and small liquor.
3: Although uh, James tried every available treatment, nothing worked. And then what's worse, in April 3rd, 1902, my son Jimmy, he became ill, feverish, and complained of a stomach ache. The doctors could do nothing. Jimmy died. It was as though my whole life stopped and Jimmy's death was too much for James. In his weakened condition, he died May 9th. Gladys and I returned to Detroit for the funerals and I tried to stay there, but I couldn't. Oh, there were too many memories. And if it hadn't been for Gladys and my renewed support in the Catholic Church, I might have followed James to the grave.
2: You know, one of the difficulties for an eligible bachelors, one of the menaces, is the women. (coughs) The socialites, I mean, They're always circling around, trying out their wiles. They're just like a pack of
1: wolves
2: (laughs) trying to cut a stag out of the herd so they can close in for the kill.
3: Thank you, dear. You're welcome. Gladys and I returned to Colorado Springs, and for two years we led a quiet, reclusive life. But after a time, I renewed a friendship with Edith Field also a widow. Together, as part of the healing process, we began attending local events. Oh, Edith had found uh, comfort in the romance with a gentleman from Detroit, Mr. Newberry. And uh, they amused me as I had decided not to marry again, and I wasn't looking for anyone. After a time, of James, after Jane's death, um, Once in a while, Mr. Spencer Penrose and I would meet at social events and we would talk.
2: You know, Julie seemed like a very sensible person, honest, no games. And since she was a widow, I made a few gestures, friendly gestures to help her out. And she returned some friendly gestures to me.
3: Oh, Spencer had taken up housing in uh, the El Paso Club, and his quixotic lifestyle had left him with indigestion that was at the mercy of the whims of local restaurants and part-time cooks. So as a friend, I sent my uh, cook's broth delivered by my butler, Mm -hmm. and I sent a maid to clean his room so that he might enjoy better health. These things I would have done for any one of my friends. But I found myself wanting to be in his company.
2: Sometimes she'd invite me for breakfast, followed by long walks in the garden. Or sometimes in the evening we'd play cards, have long conversations. Sometimes she'd read to me. And the the thing about her was that she never asked me to change or to give up any of my ways. The only thing she asked of me is that, it, that I attend parties with her.
3: I was happy to listen to him speak of all of his plans. And what did you speak of, dear?
2: Well, I, I was talking about, you know, the various businesses that I was going to go into. But, you know, what I found is that I did not really mind going to parties with Julie because all I had to do was say hello, shake hands, and stand back while she handled the small talk. (laughs) And the amazing thing is, the socialites left me alone. I mean, what is it that a woman does to mark her territory? Does Does she leave some kind of scent that says don't come any closer?
3: Don't fret about it, dear. Okay. Spencer loved to travel. He could go wherever he liked with his friends and his brothers, and the East Coast became his playground. But he always returned to Colorado Springs, and when he came back, we would, we would visit and talk about where he'd gone and what he'd done. Uh, he, well, well, he was still hesitant about having a closer relationship. But by then, I found I couldn't live without him.
2: You know, I began to become comfortable with Julie. I began to depend on her. I began to feel a rising sense of panic that I would lose my bachelorhood. (laughs) So I did what any sensible man would do. I planned my escape. I talked my older brother Dick into a trip to Europe. So, we took a train to New York, booked passage on a steamer bound for the continent, but just as the ship was about to depart, I got a bit of a shock.
3: Learning that Spencer was going to be sailing on the Kaiser Wilhelm de Gross in February of 1902, oh, oh, 06, sorry dear. Mm-hmm. I, I decided that it was time for Gladys to go to a boarding school in Belgium. (laughs) Having made the decision, I booked passage for Edith Field, myself, and Gladys. We boarded at the very last moment.
2: You know, (laughs) Sun Tzu said that a general should know the mind of his enemy. but When the enemy knows your mind, and has spies in your camp, and you're fighting a war that you don't really mind losing, the only thing you can do is surrender.
3: Later on in the trip, I learned that Spencer had asked his brother Dick to write a letter of intent to their father. His intent was to marry me. it seems I had been in his mind more than I knew. Well, when we reached the continent, Spencer offered to drive us around Europe in his automobile. And Edith and I accepted. We spent about a month at the Hotel Rule in Nice. One day, I was sitting, sunning under an umbrella when a note fell into my lap. I looked around and there was Spencer standing behind the umbrella. I opened the letter addressed to Spencer. It was from his father, and it said he gave his permission to propose marriage to me, at once if he so chose. There he stood, silent and afraid. My answer, of course, was yes. We were married at St. George's Church in London. June 8, oh sorry, April. Sorry, wrong. April. <laughs> April 26, 1906.
2: So I moved into Julie's house on Dale Street, but I was not ready to settle down to a tranquil life.
3: His experience with mining had left him untold wealth and he needed no more. But Spencer had a drive to com- Oh, to succeed that most men would have just sat back and enjoyed their wealth.
2: I, of course, had investments in gold mines, copper mines in Utah, but I wanted to improve the local economy. So I invested in a process to turn Kansas beets into Colorado sugar. I bought a ranch where we could improve the bloodlines of cattle. I, I built an orchard south of here with canals for irrigation, and a railroad spur to haul the produce away, and a little town to go with it. And those people in that town, they were kind enough to name it Penrose.
3: (laughs) I spent two years teaching Speck that there was more to life than contracts and mining. I introduced him to the gentler side of life and the joys of giving to others. We traveled all around the world together and saw beautiful things. Spencer would talk to me about his business and he, he expected replies and he honored my views. Oh, these things, oh, it was wonderful. And by the time your father died in 1908, Spencer had, he had matured and grown and he no longer felt the need to compete for his father's love.
2: In addition to all those businesses, I was still fascinated with this mesa on the southwest part of side of town, where the Cheyenne Mountain Country Club. It was still there, but Portales had also built a casino that had long since gone bankrupt, and it was hardly being used. So. I thought, I I bought the casino, I bought 400 acres of land to go with it, and my idea was that I could boost the economy and make a little money from the upper crust by giving them a hotel as fine as anything in Europe or America.
3: With his newfound feeling of success, Spencer began the grand dream. It was the birth of the Broadmoor Hotel.
2: Mm -hmm. We... um, 1916, that same, we started, we started work on the hotel. Uh, Julie and I bought a home from the estate of the Potters. Um, we added a second story to it and we named it El Pomar, after the apple orchard in which it was situated. And we continued that, we continued working on our hotel and we completed in about two years.
3: Spencer wasted no time. He hired Donald Ross to design the golf course. He contacted and asked for designs for the hotel oh, about six companies before he mm-hmm. decided on C. L. Wetmore. Wetmore came out in January of 1917 to look over the land, and his designs echoed the mountains and enfolded the Lake Cheyenne. Oh. Well, at that time, America had joined the war in 1917. But Spencer had the very best of everything. He had gold mining tailings turned into steel and concrete. We went to Europe. We bought antiques and linens, China, oh, even chandeliers. We employed the very best artists. Mm -hmm. And um, well, by the end of the construction, over one hundred Italian artists from both New York and Italy just sort of swarmed over the Broadmoor like an army of ants.
2: And as our very first registered official guest, we had John D. Rockefeller himself. Unfortunately, he was affected somewhat by the smell of fresh paint, so he moved to the antlers. You know, I have battled with the antlers for years. Did you ever hear the story about the time I got thrown out of there?
3: Well, was that the one where you rode your horse through the lobby? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, I've heard that one, dear. Oh. Uh, Let's see. Oh, yes, Chef Strada. He was the chef of the Broadmoor, although he did work for the antlers. (laughs) Spencer drew him away, and Chef Strada, oh, he, well, he kind of presided over the kitchens for decades, and oh, the entertainment, there was entertainment of every kind at the Broadmoor, from the swimming pool and the indoor theater to the golf course, hiking, hunting, fishing, boating on the outside, and... Uh, There was, oh, just everything you can imagine. In
2: 1920, this country passed into law. (laughs) The worst idea ever. (laughs) Prohibition. Well, I wasn't going to stand for it. I prepared for war. I prepared for a siege. I dug a secret tunnel under the Broadmoor Lake, and I stored all the best booze down in there. I had a hidden staircase behind the shelf in my library, and it went down to a private cellar. I bought out businesses, bars that were going out of business. I bought their liquor stocks. I stored booze in warehouses all across the country. I was ready to last for a decade, maybe <laughs> maybe two if I was careful and I became the chairman of the American Liberty League and I traveled all over the country speaking out against prohibition.
3: In October 1929, with the stock market crash, many dreams died. Uh, Spencer and I had not invested in the, um, the stock market as much as many, so we were more secure than most. But those who used to come for vacations couldn't afford it. So in 1930, 1931, there were staff cuts. Some were only working for tips and were only there when guests were there. In 1932, Spencer bought the Broadmoor out of receivership and became sole owner. He closed down most of the hotel, but he kept the um, main open as well as the Colonial Club for his friends and locals.
2: One bright spot in the depression, 1933 prohibition was repealed. (laughs) So my friends and I got all the remaining stocks out of the tunnel under the lake and we drank them up. (laughs) You know, I think those bottles are still there on the wall outside the tavern.
3: The worst was the winter of 1935 when almost everything was closed. Even Chef Strada had to, uh, well, he had to go find work elsewhere until the Broadmoor opened again, June 1st, 1936. It never closed again.
2: You know, in the 20s we added uh, a third story to El Pomar and my office is up there. And my office window looks south at Cheyenne Mountain, and I can see there is a long ridge there leading up to a flat spot up above. So I'm thinking I'm going to build a bell tower up there to hold our last remains. I'm going to call it the Spencer Penrose Shrine of the Sun.
3: Excuse me, dear. What? Remember, sin of pride.
2: Oh, yes. Okay. Um, How about if we name it after, after somebody I know. We'll name it after my good friend, the late Will Rogers. Oh,
3: that's a wonderful idea, dear.
2: Okay, yes. good.
3: Walking through the, wa- the halls of the Broadmoor today, you can see Spencer's dreams come true. The paintings, pottery, glassware, artistic designs, these are all dreams incarnate. And I fervently hope they are here for eons to come.
2: In the meantime, I have my businesses. I have my home. I have my Julie. She brings me peace. And life is good.
3: Yes, it is. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming to our town. I believe it's open for questions now. Oh, yes, sir.
1: I believe your 30 West Dale has
2: been turned into Fine Arts Center.
3: <laughs> yes, it, it first housed some of the artwork because we just had no more space. We kept adding on to El Pamar and had no... But yes, it was moved and The Fine Arts Center is there now.
2: Spencer, when you finished in Cripple Creek, you went to Utah and took over the Bingham Canyon Mine because it was gold mine. Awfully sorry, it was contaminated by copper. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Dan Jackling um, was just a wonderful metallurgist, and um, he came up with this terrific idea for pro- producing efficient copper in, out of like two percent ore. You know, and even though it was 1902, he just had a feeling, and I'm glad he did. That. Cop- Copper wasn't used for much back then, but it certainly became important later. So, yes, it was, it was very fortunate.
1: Yes? <laughs> it's very nice that, it, that the Glockner You know, we're gonna to have to
2: pick on somebody else I after know. this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead, sir.
1: It's very nice that the that
2: you imported uh, Del Regato from Madame Curie, and you cured your throat cancer from smoking radium. Yeah, yeah
1: the esophageal cancer you died of. Was that possibly alcohol?
2: (laughs) (laughs) The lady right here had a question.
1: (laughs) Oh, excuse me, Mr. Pemos. I was hoping that you would answer his question.
3: (laughs) Well, we don't speak of that. Uh,
1: (laughs) Okay, okay, uh, Julie, does it seem to you like your daughter Gladys was the wealthy American who saved the Belgian aristocrat?
3: Well, you know, they were held in uh, house arrest. Her husband, uh, yes, Gladys was married to a count in Belgium, and uh, they had their daughter, Pauline, my granddaughter, and the, they were held in during the war until uh, the war ended, and then in 1919, 19, yes, I had the Pauline Chapel built because I prayed to God that they would be saved, and since he saved them, I thought it would be appropriate to have the chapel built. The
2: Catholic Church does not name churches after women.
3: It's a chapel. you know when you're building the church,
2: and you're paying for the church. Question over here.
3: China. Uh, yes. It was fun. <laughs> no, it was the only way to actually bring things over because so many of the ships were being attacked.
1: <laughs>
3: See, what's wrong with that?
2: Any other question back there?
3: Did you guys travel to Hawaii? Did I hear you say that earlier? No. I don't, I don't remember going to Hawaii. We went all over the world, though. We might have. <laughs> <laughs> I just... And I'm <laughs>
2: supposed to be the drinker. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir.
3: I particularly liked Ita- Italy and France.
0: I've heard that there's a third person buried in the Will Rogers Shrine in the Sun.
2: Well, it's not Will. <laughs> He's in Oklahoma.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, you know, I'm getting thirsty.
3: <laughs> I'm
2: thinking maybe one more question.
3: Yes, sir. Ma'am. Oh, sorry. My angle, it looked like the man in front. Yes, ma'am. I would like to know a little more about your relationship I gotcha. with uh, Will Rogers.
2: How did you meet him? You know, how did your friendship develop? Well, you know, I, I actually, he, he liked to, uh, to travel around and uh, stay, he was a frequent guest at the Broadmoor. I had a lot of friends, famous friends, staying at the Broadmoor. Um, Jack Dempsey,
3: mm-hmm. for
2: example. His actual name was Harrison.
3: But he, he yeah. did promu-
2: yeah. Yeah. perform he, he at the Broadmoor. He honeymooned. At the, well, we had him training there uh-huh. for one of his fights, but I think all the publicity and all the questions and everything bothered him, he went somewhere else. But he did come back for his honeymoon, and he stayed at the, uh, at the lodge, the hunting lodge on top of Cheyenne Mountain. So, what, I've had a lot of famous friends, and Will, of course, was a good one. So, yes, ma'am?
0: What are your thoughts on the lodge on top of Cheyenne Mountain? They
2: demolished the
1: lodge? <laughs>
2: as long as they don't demolish the cooking club. Okay? As long as they do that, but I think they're going to... Re- I've heard stories they're going to rebuild it. So they're, So that's a good thing. Yes, ma'am? Did either of you
0: keep diaries? I mean, is there anything
3: that we could read in your... Well, in Denver, in the library... The, uh, well, it's in the university library, I believe. You'll find diaries of mine But you'll not find them very interesting. It mostly takes care of the daily linens, changing the linens, what's in the linen closets, that sort of thing. I really didn't seem to like to write about my daily life much, Um, although I'm sure the Broadmoor has a few. Maybe they can be convinced to release some of them for you. Uh, I've
2: got the bottles. (laughs) I left those behind. Yes, sir.
1: What inspired you to uh, ride your horse into the emperor's lobby? What you up to that?
2: You know, sir, that is a wonderful story, but nobody can prove it.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and I would like to keep it that way. Oh. Okay, I think we're done. Oh,
3: we're, there's do, just there's one, one more. more. One
2: more. Mr. Penrose, what do you think about the problem becoming the title sponsor of the Pikes well, that was my...
1: That was his idea.
2: Yeah, the, the Pikes Peak Hill Climb was my idea, you know, because I wanted to promote the area. Yeah. You know, there had been the, the stage road there and everything, but we built that highway, and to promote it, bring people from all over, and I think it has been a success. They have even invited me to speak at some of the recent races, so we're, ha- we're always happy to do that. Well, I think that's about it, so thank you very much.
1: Let's get to first.